Hello and welcome to Listen In at Roach Court and a conversation between Bill Woodrow and students from the Woodroff School, introduced by Head of Education at Roach Court Educational Trust, Laura Joy. Hello everybody, welcome to Roach Court today. We're in the design house now in this lovely space in Roach Court. Um, we're delighted to welcome Bill Woodrow and also the A-level art students from Woodroff School um, and the tutors who've kindly brought them here today. And we're going to be interviewing Bill about his sculpture at Roach Court. We've just looked at the Endeavour and Cello Swarm and also his wider practice and his career overall. So just a little bit about Bill before we start. Bill Woodrow emerged as a pivotal figure in a new generation of British sculptors in the early 1980s who centred on the use of found objects and or simple manufacturing procedures. Often using discarded or waste objects in ephemera, Woodrow then cut apart and reassembled these into inventive sculptures with often elusive meanings, placing the onus of interpretation on the viewer. In the late 80s, Woodrow began to transition to casting works in bronze. An exceptional example of his works in bronze was the monumental sculpture made for the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square, London, regardless of history, in the year 2000. And another is the piece we'll be focusing on today, Endeavour, made in 1994, which is exhibited here at Roach Court. So thank you very much, Bill, for coming to us today. <laughs> that, that was a list and a half. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to hear that. <laughs> So anyway. really, really, really yeah. lovely to have okay. you here with us today. Um, and uh, we've, we've got some questions straight off. And uh, I think that Patrick was going to start us off. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, so I've got like a, I'm really interested in the like, practical side of the sculptures. Like, I'm um, just wondering what the, uh, like the casting process of, of casting in bronze is, because they're quite large. So I'd assume you'd like, do them in separate sections and then put them all together at the end or is it something else? Okay, the first thing is if you want to cast something of any size then you need help. So you go to a foundry um, where there are very expert trained technicians to help you. For example, this glass, if you wanted to make a bronze glass like that, you, as you rightly said, you make a mould of it which would probably be in rubber or silicon. It would be, for something like this, it would be in two halves, or maybe, you know, maybe three pieces, one for the inside and one for the, a split one on the exterior. And they, they would come apart. That would have to be made. Then that gets a jacket put round it to keep it in the correct shape. You take the silicon mould off that you then fill the gap that's left by not having the glass in it. Fill that with wax, molten wax. That solidifies, so you have a wax version of the glass. <clears throat> you then make uh, another mould around the wax within a material which it can be, uh, it can be from sand, which compacts very tightly together, which is called sand casting. Um, or you can use uh, what they call a grog, which is like a plaster, but it's got other things mixed with it. <clears throat> or you can use a ceramic um, mixture. And all of those three sort of set into the shape of the wax, or around the wax. 
and they take up the surface takes up every little detail of that thing that you're casting. That mould is then put into a kiln, heated up, and the wax melts out of it, so you're left with the uh, hollow form of the glass inside. Okay. You then melt your bronze uh, in the furnace and basically pour it into the mould. Uh, it then sets you then break the mould off. Uh, uh, the mould doesn't last for more than one cast. Um, then you have a bronze version of the glass, but which needs then has attachments to it where you've poured it in, called the runners and risers, and some bits of it are, are a bit rough. It then goes through the workshop, uh, gets finished or fettled or many different words for the finishing process until you end up with something that you actually want. And that process it takes quite a long time. The interesting thing about it, it's a very, very ancient process which really hasn't changed since it, uh, it first was invented. Um, you know, materials have changed, you know, we have electricity and different ways of melting and the bronze, etc., etc. But the basic fundamentals haven't changed at all. That when I first started casting things in bronze, um, I was very new to the process, very kind of naive about it. Um, I'd get to the process of where you'd have many components, which then had to be welded together and finished to get, you know, what you wanted. And it would take a technician maybe two or three weeks to. Um, assemble all the bits, weld them together and finish them off and then I would be asked to come into the foundry and check. But I didn't have the heart to say, do it again. Um, and it wasn't until I watched <coughs> other artists who came in who were much more experienced and had been casting things for a long time come in and they'd have the same situation, they'd just say, do it again. And nobody complained, nobody lifted an eyelid, blinked or anything. Their main objective was to get it exactly as you wanted it, and they didn't mind doing that. So that was a revelation to me. I think from start to finish of Endeavour, the canon, that probably took me two months, I would have thought. And then with the stack of the canon balls, and the sign could be between two and four months, really. I can't remember exactly. It was a long time ago, 1994. Once the casting process began and it went into the foundry, um, from start to finish, probably just over a year. When you make the maquette, you've got this work in front of you. Your relationship with that is very immediate and it's something you're engaged with. It goes to the foundry and it gets cut up into bits uh, and it's a bit like you've lost touch with it. And then you come back a month later or a few months later, look at different pieces. And it's not until a year that the whole thing is finally put together and seen. So <clears throat> you have to remake the connection with the work. It's, that's, that for me, that was quite difficult at first because I'd been very used to working with the cutout work, um, which you've probably seen pictures of, 
which is very immediate and you work, it's almost like drawing, it's, it happens in front of you and you sort of working at the same pace as you're thinking and you're thinking through making the work. Uh, so the casting thing was totally the opposite of that. Sometimes if something's taking a very long time to make, <clears throat> then it's quite good to sort of just have a break and something. Um, and I think drawing um, helps that. It can take a long time to start. Uh, but once you've started, it just, the thing takes on its own life. By making the work, it's a way of thinking and it's a way of working things out. But it's not something that in my head is a conscious thing, I must do this or do that. It's, I'm thinking visually and you should be prepared to be excited by something happening that you weren't expected at all. You know, uh, and you should allow things to go in, in a direction <clears throat> that your subconscious or intuitive feelings you know, uh, take you. Well, it's like a disease. <clears throat> I don't have any option, I have to be making something. Even if I'm at home and I'm not in the studio, if I'm not doing something that's hand-eye-brain kind of related, um, I get bored very quickly. Yeah, I was gonna ask if there was a, like a global issue or personal trigger that inspired Endeavour. I've always listened to a lot of music. One of the albums I was listening to a lot was by Bob Seger. And there was a track on this album which was called Ship of Fools. And I really liked this track. And I decided just to make a piece of work with that title. But I didn't know anything about <clears throat> the history of the Ship of Fools. And it was through making that, I can't remember which was the first work, but there's a whole series of works that are based on the Ship of Fools or have Ship of Fools in the title. Then I just discovered that, you know, there's a whole history to this thing and I picked it up through listening to rock and roll. I was interested at the point when I made that for a couple of years in things that you see in everyday life. There were things that people would use that I didn't quite understand why they liked them. So you'd go, you'd see a cartwheel leaning up against a cottage or they'd have or somebody would put a plough in their front garden or by the road as a sign. Or <clears throat> if you go to certain maritime cities, you see lots of anchors placed about. Um, and I was really interested in these things and seeing if I could use them to start making a work from and sort of try and subvert, I don't know whether subvert them or change them so they took on a different meaning. I didn't really know what the meaning would be. I wouldn't decide what the meaning was going to be. There's a work called Rut, which has a huge cartwheel in it. On lots of large institutional buildings, you quite often see cannons outside, you know, historical buildings. Um, and they're not always military buildings either, but the cannons are used. And I just thought, yeah, let's see, if, what, what can I do with that? I'd read somewhere that some of the very first cannons that were ever made were made by the Chinese and the barrels were made of wood. So that started, making, started me thinking about a barrel made out of a tree trunk. Um, then I thought of barrels of cannons and rifles uh, uh, have a twist inside the barrel called rifling. 
And I thought, well, if I put that rifling on the outside of the, uh, of the barrel, it would be like the bark of a tree, but it also would, it would mean that the person who was making the gun or the cannon um, didn't really know what they were doing. So they were part of the ship of fools. And so everything was sort of reversed or inversed. Um, where did the interest in bees come from? In 1996, I had a big exhibition in the Devine Galleries at Tate Britain, which went right the way through, of uh, all cast work. Um, after that exhibition, you do it and it builds up to a certain level and then there's this, you achieve it, and then there's a sort of a flat period. Um, <clears throat> and I decided that after that show, I wanted to work in a very different way, just for a change. And I wanted, I decided I wanted to work on a theme rather than just make a work and then see what the next one would be or what would turn up and after about three months I don't know where it came from but just popped out of my head with the three words um, the beekeeper the more I thought about it was I thought about beekeeping and I thought it was a really interesting subject to make work about because it's um, conceptually really rich the relationship between bees and humans this symbiotic relationship they have was really fascinating so I started making stuff, <clears throat> and then I think about six months after I started making a few things, I decided I'd better find out more about this properly. So I went on a beekeeping course, and the guy who was running it <clears throat> had a couple of hives, put his hand in, and he just lifted his hand out, and it had a huge swarm of bees on it. And his hand was here with this huge swarm of bees and he just tapped his hand and the bees just fell and they just attached to my hand and arm. And um, it was a very beautiful experience because it was so light and there was this very, very slight movement and uh, they were warm. There was this sort of temperature uh, and in no way were they aggressive or there was any problem. I keep thinking that I've finished making work about bees, but something always pops up. It hasn't quite finished yet. And the cello I like very much because the bees kind of render it unable to be used, but it also has, it, the bees themselves produce a sound when they're there, there's this sort of slight gentle buzzing all the time. So they're two different sorts of sounds. And but I think music is, is important to me. I listen to it when I'm working, but only if I'm doing something that's sort of mechanical. If I'm trying to concentrate and think, I generally will turn it off. One of the uh, first, the major cutout pieces that I made that uh, you might have seen images of the twin tub with guitar. Well, I had an album by Eddie Cochran, which has a picture of him on the front with this beautiful guild guitar, which I really loved that guitar and, uh, and the colour of it. And when I came across 
this wash, dumped washing machine, which was exactly the right colour. That's a, sort of an off-white creamy, sort of slightly yellowy colour. Um, I just had to make the guitar. Um, did you ever, I don't know how to word it, did you ever reach a point, not a breaking point, but a moment where you doubt your work or your career in general and kind of, obviously to be here today, you've pushed through that and what do you think it kind of was? That do I doubt and have a breaking point? Yeah, every week. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, okay, when I was your age, I was academically okay. Not brilliant, but, you know, I was okay. And art and the art room and everything that went on, that, that was the highlight of, of, of school for me. I couldn't get enough of it. And, it's, and it was the thing that <clears throat> I got most reward for from other people in a, in a sense, you know. I mean, I didn't understand it at the time, how it worked, but that my ego was being polished, basically, because people say, oh, that's, you know, fantastic. And so, that, you know, you think, oh, there's something here, you know, apart from the fact that, that I really enjoyed it. From the sixth form onwards, I knew that's what I wanted to do, basically because that's the only thing I could do that gave me any satisfaction. I think, I think all I would say is if any of you want to do that, go for it. I was teaching, when I left college, I was, <clears throat> I was at school and then I went in Eastleigh and then I went to Winchester for a foundation course which was very, very important to do the foundation course because you've got a taste of everything. And I guess, I mean, you all know about that by now. Um, and you could choose. It sort of was a way of filtering out what you didn't want to do. <clears throat> um, then I did three years at St. Martin's in London and then a postgrad at Chelsea. Um, <clears throat> and then you suddenly, you're out in the big wide world and you have to exist, you know. The mechanics of life kind of kick in very quickly and quite seriously. Um, so I ended up teaching in a big comprehensive school in Stockwell in London. But what was important at that point was I was earning some money. Um, I wasn't on the dole. I could have gone on the dole and just spent all my time trying to make work. But I realised very quickly that, that the most important thing was if I had money not only could I exist and my family could exist, <clears throat> but I could work for maybe one day or two days at the weekend <clears throat> and I could have everything that I needed just to make that one day really work. I could get the material I wanted, I could get, I have electricity and warmth and space. And it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that my career took off at all. Uh, so from the age of 18 or 19, when I went to college, that's a long time <clears throat> to uh, be committed to and know that this is what you want to do and to stick at it. Uh, and then there's no guarantee, but it's tough. Um, I think it's even tougher today because of the number of people who want to be artists. 
Or have you been influenced by social media at all? Social media in terms of Facebook and Twitter and etc. I'm not interested in one bit. I've never had been. Um, uh, I think it's totally unnecessary. I've got better things to be interested in. I do realise that that is how the world is working and that's how the art world is working. And uh, I think I pay quite a large price for not engaging with that. I'm often told, or very frequently told, you should have an Instagram page, you should do this, you should do that, and I just, no, I, no. I'd rather be doing something else. Making my work, it's like writing a diary. It's just, that's my response to the world at this point. And if, in a perfect, my perfect scenario would be that I would have every piece of work that I've made Every time a work is sold, it's like ripping some pages out of your diary and sticking them in the fire or throwing them away. So you end up with this incomplete uh, diary. That's, that's the best way I can describe my relationship to my work, especially when the work disappears out of view. Uh, I mean, to have the work on show here, for example, is fantastic. Um, because if I need to, I can come and see it, or uh, it can be seen. Sometimes it goes into you know, private collections and it's never seen, um, or it goes into storage. I mean, I've got work in storage that I haven't seen for 30 years, because it's been in a crate somewhere. But I know that diary is in my pocket, not somebody else's. All the pages are still all there. Uh, the accordion-like instrument really interested me. Mm -hmm. um, I think that music and art are very closely linked, and I noticed that <clears throat> it was playing a G major chord, from what I could tell. Um, really? <laughs> I was just wondering, um, like, G major is, in music is associated with, like, big grand sort of entrances yeah, yeah, yeah. and fanfares. Um, well, I tell you, that's... Uh, the first time I've ever heard that, I had no idea. Okay. <laughs> I was about to ask, was this That's why I love these kind of things. Yeah. I'm finding out. That's really good. You're smart. <laughs> I have to watch you. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering whether that was intentional or... No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, but I like the idea very much. So like, um, it's it taken me how many? 27 years to find that out. <laughs> The Roach Court Educational Trust is an arts education charity based at the New Arts Centre near Salisbury in Wiltshire. We welcome over 11,000 children, young people and specialist groups annually, both to the sculpture park and galleries at Roach Court and as part of our national speaking initiative, Articulation. We encourage an exploration of modern and contemporary art through our looking, thinking and speaking approach. As an independent charity, we rely on donations and supporters to deliver our programme for further details of how to support our work, please visit our website at roachcourteducationaltrust.co.uk.